Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, I'm really pleased uh, this time to have on um, Pascal Emmanuel Gobri. He uh, writes about religion, culture, politics, economics, business, and technology. Um, he is a fellow over with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, but you, you've seen his work in, in Forbes, The Week, uh, even The Atlantic. They, they used to let you um, write your heresies in The Atlantic. I know they've, they've gone considerably... Um, they- They've I don't changed even want to say a lot. left. Let, let's just put it that way. They've changed a lot. Yeah, I don't even want to say they've gone more left because they were always left, but they've gotten more intolerant as of late. Yes, um, but but that, you've seen his, his writing around. Um, and then you've also seen him on Twitter uh, as P-E-G, P-E Gobri on Twitter. Um, he has a very active and interesting Twitter account. Um, so, so welcome, Pascal, to High Noon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, one of the things I, I really wanted to ask you. So, um, one of the things I should have said in your your bio is that uh, you you live in France. Um, so you are you are a Frenchman. Um, yes. And I, I wanted to to ask because one of the more interesting things, uh, most interesting things about your work to me has been some of your comparisons uh, between the various p- political systems and then economics of France and America. And one of the things I found really interesting is you come out somewhere in the middle, right, where you have some critiques of potentially like a sort of conservative view, or or maybe you would call it a libertarian view in America that focuses on GDP growth above all, that focuses on, you know, perhaps um, some aspects or, or places economic growth above uh, family formation and some other um, goods that you uh, are concerned about as a conservative. But on the other hand, you've written critiques of, of, for example, the French socialist healthcare system. You've written critiques of aspects of the French economy that you think are too socialist. So you see like you seem like very sort of measured and in the middle um on this this common good economics question so i mean could you give us a, a ten thousand foot view of what you think the goods that the economic uh, world should pursue like what, what would be a good economic policy on the the 10 or thirty thousand foot level that right. has some free market aspects but focuses on things uh that aren't just gdp growth I thought you were going to say 10,000 words, and I was like, yes, I can speak for an hour uninterrupted. Uh, no, that's that's a really good topic. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that people think there's like a one-dimensional spectrum where it's like you either have more government and less markets or more markets and less government. And like the only thing you can do is like move that switch, that slider, Um, And I don't think that's how it works. Um, There are places where France is more free market than America. There are places where America is more socialist than France. One of my favorite statistics to quote is that uh, government spending on healthcare as a percentage of GDP is higher in the U.S. than in France. And so for those of us who remember the Obamacare debate, when everybody on the left was talking about how, you know, France is this socialist healthcare paradise, America's healthcare system is more socialist than France. So so if you're going to compare and say, oh, you know, do we need, well, if if America were to, to imitate France more, that would mean becoming more free market. Uh, Medicare is more socialist than, you know, if you're on Medicare, you're on, you, your healthcare is quote unquote more socialized than the average French person's healthcare. Uh, because France is actually, it's a mix of government and private insurance. You have 
you, you basically have both. So that's one stat that I love to quote because most people in the U.S. have no idea that, you know, they think of French healthcare, they think socialism, and they think of American healthcare, they think free market, and actually it's, I mean, it's not the opposite, but uh, so that's just one example. And I mean, the 10,000 foot view, I would just say my, uh, 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 my hero, Tucker Carlson, got in a lot of trouble when he said uh, the following sentence, the free market is a tool, uh, end quote. And I don't understand how anybody can disagree with that assessment. Like the market economics, like the economic world is not an end. It's a means for human flourishing, which is the end we want to to accomplish as a society, one of the means for us to have human flourishing as a society is economic prosperity, market exchange, private business, all of which are very good, but like, it's not an end in itself. It's a means to accomplish human flourishing. Part of human flourishing means, you know, that people live, you know, that they have jobs, that there's economic activity and so on, but that's not the only dimension of human flourishing. And so uh, my 10,000 foot view of, of the matter is that I think that politics is primary over economics. I think that uh, the job of government is to, uh, yeah, to ensure that most of the people in society have a flourishing life. And most of the time that involves getting out of the way, maybe, but not always, not every time. Um, and that's just, that's just the way I see it. Um, and I would note that that's the way almost every government in the history of humanity has worked like even the government of the United States in like the 19th century was not a libertarian utopia. Um, you know, if you look at how the railways were built in the U S in the 19th century, uh, you know, it was private sector entrepreneurs. Sure. With government backed loans, <laughs> so, <laughs> it was already quote unquote socialist. Um, the other 10,000 foot view thing I would say is that I hate the word capitalism because how do you define capitalism? If you define uh, private ownership of goods and services and market exchange, then literally every society in the history of the planet has been quote unquote capitalist, except for like Stalinist Russia, Maoist China and North Korea. Like it, it's a cold war world word. It's like a word that was only relevant between 1945 and 1989 because other than that, every apart from communism, every society has had private ownership of capital and market exchange. So clearly, uh, private ownership and market exchange are like part of human nature. It's what humans do. You know, it's like in prison, like people start using cigarettes as currency. Like it's just part of humans living in society. They will exchange things for money and they will like, build things and consider that this their private property. So anytime somebody says, oh, capitalism is great, or oh, capitalism is bad, it's like, I mean, like humans will be capitalist anyway. So the question is, what kind of capitalism? How does capital, 
what what particular system do you have? I think that the the debate of whether it's capitalism good versus capitalism bad, I think that's a red herring. So I don't know. I think I've gone on for like a very long time. <laughs> that's what podcasts are for. Um, it seems like what one of the things you're saying here is that it's there isn't really because people set up capitalist exchanges. The question is, you know, what vessel is created by society that might be partially government or might be partially not governmental, but what vessel is shaping the direction of those exchanges, right? That um, these exchanges don't happen in a vacuum. Uh, There's not like some abstract whiteboard behind where, uh, you know, everybody starts at zero and like we build the system in this purely free market way. In fact, these exchanges are happening in a variety of systems and and the shape of capitalism in a country fits, ends up um, filling or fitting uh, certain contours, whether intentional or unintentional, I'm guessing. Uh, There are probably plenty of those contours that are unintentional. Right. Yeah. I mean... The the other thing is, you know, capitalism rests on the bedrock of culture. I, I just want to tell two stories that I think are super re- revealing. Uh, one of them, I believe, I don't want to rip this off, I believe was originally told by Megan McArdle on her blog, but this may be wrong, and I'm probably going to get the details wrong. Uh, but I think it was her or, or a friend of hers who went to Russia in the 90s to report or whatever or to work and um this person shows up to his hotel has a reservation and shows up to the front desk and says uh, i have a reservation my name is so and so and the hotel guy says oh yeah we canceled your reservations like what do you mean you canceled my reservations like somebody offered to pay more for the room and so here's this guy in like you know 1990s russia with nowhere to stay at night because somebody decided, and you know, the guy was outraged. Like, that's not how it works. Like if I have a reservation, I have a reservation. The guy was like, what? Like Russia's capitalist now, somebody offered to pay more for your room. So we gave it to him. And, you know, like you can say, well, you know, once you have a capitalist system over time, like hotels recognize that it's terrible for their brand if they screw people like that and so on and so forth. But realistically, um, what happens is that capitalism works on a bedrock of culture where people have a cultural um, – they're sort of brought into certain habits of fair dealing and so on and so forth. Like, you know – Capitalism in Afghanistan is not the same thing as capitalism in, you know, New Zealand. Uh, (laughs) You know what I mean? And the second second story I like to use, uh, which is a a, a true story because it happened to me, so I know that one a lot better, um, uh, was when I went to Switzerland, uh, because part of my family is Swiss, and Switzerland is like, you know, it's like the closest thing to libertarian utopia. Um, and so I went to visit with friends who have a house there in the countryside, absolutely magnificent. And um, it's in this village. And one of the things I found out when I went there is that there's a private road because there's like it goes up. And like essentially like farmers went to the city and said, could you build a road up there so we can reach our fields? And the city said, no, that's too expensive, which already, if you're French, that's like, you're like in science fiction land. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) 
Um, there, there wasn't a strike on the road, so. Uh. <laughs> and so the farmers were, said, well, okay, fine, we'll just build the road. Um, and they did. Like, they pulled together a bunch of money and they built the road. And um, I love this story because it's like the, the anti-libertarian story. It's like, who's going to build the roads? It's like, you can build private roads. I saw one. I, wa- I was on one. I touched it with my feet. Um, and so private roads exist and there's a toll and you have to pay the toll because it's a private road. Um, but here's the, the, here's the interesting part of the story. Uh, when I went there with my friends who we had to use this road and there wasn't the toll, um, the toll booth. Um, and so my, uh, my, my friend who is my relative who's driving stubbed the car and spent 10 minutes looking for the little box where you put your money because it's not a toll with a barrier. It's like a little box on the side of the road and people put in their money. And it had sort of fallen because of the wind into the ground. And so he spent 10 minutes looking for it. Like I, you know, I usually, I think of myself as an honest citizen, but like after five minutes of sitting uh, at the side of this road in the countryside, I was going like, look, we looked for it. It's not there. Let's just go. But he was like, no, like you have to pay. We went in. And so he spent 10 minutes looking for this thing. And once he found it, he put his money in. And the point is, the point of the story is the private road can only work in a place like Switzerland where people are culturally ingrained so that they're going to they're going to spend 10 minutes looking for the thing where they have to pay, right? You could not build that road in France, not just because it would be illegal, because but because if you actually wanted to make it operate, you would have to have like a barrier and you would have to have like a person in a toll booth getting paid because nobody's going <laughs> nobody's going to put the money in the box in their own initiative <laughs> in France. No way. <laughs> But in Switzerland, they will. In Switzerland, uh, you know, nobody, like, there's no camera. There's nothing. They just follow the rule out of their own accord because that's the way they were brought up. That's the culture in Switzerland. Like, you know. Um, And so the point is, you know, whatever we call the free market capitalism and, and so on and so on, um, and so forth, it only exists on a bedrock of strong cultural values. Um, and so, the, 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 you know, um, I guess what I want to say is that this theory that you just need to remove government and the free market will magically sort of fill the gap and create amazing things, like, yes, sometimes that's true. And sometimes you get 1990s Russia. Like, it, it really depends. I mean, I guess the, the rejoinder there from, I don't even want to say libertarians, but um, free marketeers, but usually there's a second half to that equation, right? Which is property rights protected. Like, even libertarians will say that, you know, it's necessary to have a government that protects property rights. I don't know that right. that covers necessarily your, your room reservation because it depends whether you, you gain a property right. Uh, yeah, that's to a the very room interesting reservation. question. Do you have a property right, right to a room reservation? <laughs> um, but I mean, 
there's I would say that even the most libertarian, unless they're like anarchist, um, most libertarians would also acknowledge that you need the government to protect property rights. They would say, but that's it, right? Yeah. And and you've advocated for more interventionistic policies. And correct me if I'm wrong, like to actively try. Uh, to, for example, build up the family, to raise fertility rates, those kinds of policies. Um, and that, that seems to me to require an additional argument on top of what you're you're giving about 1990s Russia. And, and because the, fundamentally, like it, it's a kleptocracy. Nobody, um, at least nobody serious, thinks about like Ethiopia or um, places where there's truly no actual enforcement of government. Um and there's no monopoly on <laughs> on violence uh, right. that are sort of the, the basics, and there's no enforcement of basic property rights. Those may be quote unquote capitalist, um, but I think that's more of a socialist rejoinder than anything. Oh, like if you want to live in free markets, go to go to Ethiopia. Um, I, I I don't think that that like all yeah, I mean would, would acknowledge that they, the government comes in and enforces property rights, sets rules of the road, you know, enforces certain statutes against fraud, right? Um, these are really basic, even common law constru- uh, constructions. And and you're right, they're cultural to the extent that the common law developed in a particular place and a, uh, and, and spread from, you know, the Anglosphere to America. Um, so I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you, but it seems to me that you need to add something additional to get from a minimal enforcement of property rights to, okay, we actually need to use the free market as a tool towards particular ends that we think are important. Yeah. I mean, um, that, to the point about Russia, the thing is that the, the, the people in the early 90s who, um, who talked the Russian government into um, enacting those policies uh they thought this they thought that you know the night watchman state would work um so you know today of course like you would say oh you know there's no government at all it's anarchy that's not the same thing as capitalism because capitalism implies the rule of law blah 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 it's true um but that's not what people thought at the time. People at the time thought, well, you know, we just need to get government out of the way and, and you know, it will magically turn into Hong Kong and it didn't. So that's, that's just uh, what I would say there. With regard to, I mean, with regard to pro-family policy, I mean, I would say a couple things. There's a like, there's like a theoretical sort of principle thing and then there's a practical thing. The theoretical, theoretical thing is that um, I don't really know how to put this. Like I've 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 lost my libertarian to human being dictionary. So I sorry. <laughs> uh, I I I don't really I I don't really know how to like. At some point, if human thriving, if your only version of human thriving if the only version that of human thriving that you're able to conceive of is the, you know, the totally liberated human being and that the only thing that you require of him of life is that the government does not infringe upon his rights, full stop. I, I don't really know what to say to you. Like if you don't, 
think of supporting families as like a good in itself, as like an intrinsically valuable thing, uh, as valuable as national security, as, you know, why is there the Pentagon? Why, why have the military? Well, because without it, you don't have anything else. Because if you don't have the military, then other people will come and take your and take your country, and you won't have a country. Well, why support families? Because if if you don't have families and that are able to have a prosperous life, and if people don't have children, then what's the point of being a country? Like literally, like what? What is? I'm not saying everybody should have a family, but like it's pretty demonstrably that the case that that's what most people want out of life primarily. And so if they're not having it um, and, and you have this ideology that says, well, we can't do anything about it uh, because freedom, then I, I think your ideology is, you know, uh, bad. <laughs> Uh, and, and the sort of practical point is that birth rates are collapsing all over the world. And so what, what, what was once a theoretical argument is becoming like an existential threat, like literally. Like if, if people stop having children, like certainly Europe and America will go extinct. Potentially all of humanity will go extinct because – Apart from Sub-Saharan Africa, like there is the entire world, apart from Sub-Saharan Africa and Israel, the entire world is below replacement fertility. The Middle East, Asia, Russia, Europe, North America, South America. Nobody, and Sub-Saharan Africa is on the same trajectory as everybody else. Uh, they're just behind, but the curve is the same. So, so we just have to assume that at some point they will also be at like 1.1 children per woman. So what is going on? And I mean, if you're- That was the question I wanted to ask you. America or Canada or whatever, you're looking at potentially the end of your own nation within the last lifetime of your your grandchildren. Like that's, you know, so I guess I guess no longer a theoretical argument. That's like a survival argument. Like we need to figure out some way for people to make more kids, and we need to figure that out soon, because otherwise, like everything we've built, like sorry for sorry to sound like a crazy person, but like what's the point of having an Eiffel Tower? What's the point of having a Statue of Liberty if like a hundred years from now it's just going to be ruins around it with like feral animals <laughs> maybe not a hundred uh, years from now maybe a hundred but that's i mean so so i, like I have two questions back to this children, like there's no there are no human beings anymore and then and then that's it <laughs> no no I, I i agree about the the larger point i guess i have two questions back one um i didn't realize how uniform that collapse in fertility was so that that warrant some kind of broader explanation um, beyond yeah. perhaps uh, like some narrow economic or perhaps it's like macroeconomic um, explanation. And then the second, the second aspect of this is, um, you know, to what extent this is whatever that macro explanation is, um, 
because it's interesting because I, I definitely tend more towards the cultural explanations, but this is a big uh, rejoinder to, to how I've been thinking about it because I've been thinking about it more as atomization and the rise of, of sort of um, actually that we got to a certain, to the extent economics plays into this, it was we got to a certain level of, of um, decadence and, and prosperity that uh, we started to have this like existential crisis. Right. Um, but I mean, that really weren't, and maybe that still is the explanation, but if it is, it's not just a crisis of the West, then it's, it's a, a broader human crisis about the, what the purpose is to your point about like what the purpose is about having an Eiffel Tower or a Statue of Liberty um, and what, what the purpose of, of our existence as a species is and whether or not we can actually muster the will to, to defend it. Yeah. I mean, it 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 is like it is very real the decline of fertility i mean the figures are you know undeniable um and it's very revealing that most people even on the right don't know about it like in any you know at any time before 1965 1975 like it would have been considered like a national emergency like it would be like the first thing on top of newspapers like like, you know, in terms of existential threats, like what the left thinks climate changes, this is actually it. Um, or at least, you know, conceivably, certainly like we should be talking about it a lot more. And in terms of what of what's causing it, I mean, <laughs> you know, there you can go to some crazy corners of the Internet. They have theories. Um there, there definitely seems to be a cultural aspect of it. I mean, you know, women's fertility starts declining at a, a, around 25, which nobody tells young women. Um, and so mo- most young women think that if they, if they start having, if they start trying to have children at age 30 or 35, it'll be like this. And it turns out it's not. Um, so that's definitely cultural. Um or they think, or they can't like find a partner or get married before before that age because of like all of the you know post sexual revolution stuff. That so that's, uh, but there are also you know uh, biological things like the decline of sperm counts in men, the decline of testosterone levels in men, uh, and you can you know you can go on and on you know the the xenoestrogens in the water and stuff like that which is real by the way i thought that, i thought it was crazy but it's like you know like like you can google the epa reports like it's absolutely like completely officially true that there's estrogen in the water we drink <laughs> and it is actually turning the frogs gay <laughs> Well, it, it's not yeah. turning them gay. It's 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 turning them hermaphrodite. This is actually true. Like it's it like it's it, it's creating um, hermaphrodite like uh, frogs and other small pond animals because of the estrogen in the water. Like it's actually true. So it seems to be some sort of combination of cultural and biological, and with maybe some sort of like chicken and egg thing. Um, because of course, like the fewer children people have, the, the less friendly to children society is, right? 
uh, from small things to like how tolerant people are of children at like restaurants and things like that to big things like what's the constituency for pro-family policy. Uh, obviously, if if most people have like one have zero to one point one children, the politics of pro-family policy or pro-natalist policy are different from a country where like lots and lots of people have like three or four children, right? So it's it's um, interesting, actually. One one of the things that I um, remember liking about France and um, I've, I've been a few times, but one of the times was invited by a um, Catholic education group because uh, I worked in education policy for the last 10 years and um, to present basically on American education reforms and stuff like that, that one of those, those very neoliberal sort of exchanges across the Atlantic. Um, but one of the things that really struck me was we would go to chic restaurants, you know, in Paris. Um, this is most of the people involved in this were, let's say, from 25 through like 40. And yeah. we would go to chic restaurants and you see people eating with their families. Like it's not as um, culturally segregated as the U.S., where I feel like if you're going to a nice restaurant, people just do not bring their kids. Even if they have their kids, they, they just don't bring their kids because that's not considered an appropriate form for children. Right, and on right, the flip right, side, you know, right. none of those kids were running around like smearing stuff on the walls either. Right. So, um, but it, it, it struck me actually as something very healthy um, about France. And actually, this is another thing I wanted to ask you about um, given your background. It seems to me like that was one thing that I thought was very healthy about French culture that actually people were still taking, the, there wasn't this sharp divide between child rearing and the rest of, of life um, yeah, that sounds right. And and but the second thing that I wanted to ask you about about French culture is why do you think the French? Because it seems to me that there's still some vitality left in French culture in a way um, that oftentimes in many European countries, uh, at least that I've visited, there 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 yeah. isn't there there is that sense that the French still like themselves. Now, whether everyone else likes them or not, maybe a different question. But like at least the French still like themselves, and they seem to be less captured by this. Um, kind of crisis of Western self-confidence yeah. where, you know, Americans are always uh, concerned with the worst sins of America. The UK is the same way. Germany, perhaps for better reason <laughs> or more recent reasons, is consumed yeah. with their own failures, right? Um, and and it seems like the French are at least somewhat exempt from that, that actually um, they seem still quite confident that they have a good culture and they deserve to exist, which seems so yeah. basic, but it seems like in a lot of the West, that's not it's not the case anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, relatively speaking, that's true. I mean, a lot of the same pathologies that are everywhere in the West and in Europe um, are in France, but relatively speaking, it's true. And um, as to why that, I mean, I, I remember like, just take one example. I took my daughter shopping uh, for comics, and we went to a comic book store um, uh, yesterday or before last weekend, and I noticed that there's huge wing of like history comic books, and so you have comic books about Napoleon, you have comic books about De Gaulle, you have comic books about like you know medieval knights and and stuff like that, and I was like, I don't think you have like. 
when I went to the like the children's book sections of bookstores in the U.S., it's all like anti-racist baby and. <laughs> it's yeah, not, you know, it's not have. George Washington comic this, book, yeah. right? It's not. Um, so yeah, it's it 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 is true to to a certain extent. Uh, as you know, if you want to ask me why, um, I don't know, like. We're amazing. Um, uh, <laughs> I no, I honestly don't have a strong theory, uh, uh, like a theory of why the French are more culturally conf- confident than most other countries. Um, I mean, it it really does seem to be in our blood. Like it really, like I mean, you know, that's this. That's been, that was the stereotype about the French 300 years ago, and it's still the stereotype about the French that we're just, you know, we're just in love with our own culture and with good reason for it, to be honest. So I guess that's just the way we are. Um, what what sort of painful? I mean, what I sort of wonder about is. Is it actually real or is it just that we're on a time delay versus the rest of the world? Um, and and I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, um, I mean, a, a big part of it, If I, I do have one thing to point out. A big part of it is that, uh, but it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing, but our elites are better educated. Uh, because you still have to, if, if you if you want to get a degree, you still have to study like humanities and classics and things like that. Uh, in most cases, um, and so it helps that you know elites are more culturally literate here in terms of like having read old books and things like that, and so they have more of an understanding of what it is that. Uh, they're losing, and that's just no longer the case in the U.S. Like in the U.S., you know, if, if you want to get into Harvard, you've got to have great grades, great SAT scores, but nobody cares um, if you've read, you know, Dante or probably you have to read Shakespeare, I guess, to get, like, good grades in English. No. <laughs> no, not really. The, the, the entire core of, of – well, part of it, it's just very difficult to compare um, because, of course – the, the the famous phrase when I was over there dealing with the ed stuff was uh, the, the minister of education should be able to look at his clock and know what every French second grader is learning. Um, your system right. is very, very centralized in a way that the yes. United States, I think, fortunately, is is not. I think it works in France, but U.S. is many times bigger and many times more yeah, yeah, um, sure. separated and attenuated. But I that's part of it. Right. You can actually you can you can fight over the curriculum because the curriculum is centralized. Um, right. But that also leads that also leads to downsides like, you know, homeschooling basically being borderline illegal in France and somebody will come to your door and check that you are teaching the appropriate view on the French Revolution to your your child. Well, um, I mean it, so. it, it used to be it used to be legal. It was it was banned by uh, Macron a couple of years ago, which I'm still furious about. Um you know, so I guess one of the the things I wanted to ask you about um is also because you have this view of, of the free market as a tool, but, but as a useful one, right? Like, um, it it seems like in some ways the two halves of what you're talking about with the, um, fertility rate crisis 
and this confidence in, in, and, and you, you're very prolific on, on the sexual revolution as well on Twitter. Um, I have some insights there, but uh, it seems like it, the focus on economics, and this has always been my objection. It's not that I object practically to, for example, taking a look at child tax credits or, or looking at how we can construct an economy that also um, that maybe tamps down on some of the atomizing and, and individualizing right. tendencies over time of, of right. you know, sort of capital L liberalism. Um, right. But at the same time, it does seem to me that there's some non-materialist aspect to this at all, right? That I, I don't, and that there's the inevitability of it uh, that, that bothers me of this argument that like, okay, we had, we had like the middle ages and, and um, the, the high point of the Catholic church and, and that like, philosophy, let's say, of uh, my friend Sarab or, or Patrick Deneen or, or Adrian Vermeule. And then we had the Protestant uh, Reformation, in, Enlightenment, Rationalism and Liberalism. And like, it inevitably from John Locke, Every, it's been downhill down. since the 13th century. <laughs> all all I, downhill. And I, I just that strikes me as so um, sort of didactic and almost Marxist. And it's yeah. View, not in its economics, actually, but in, in its view that um, there, there's there's all the, the sort of ups and downs and, and the changeability of culture and civilizations and history and human beings is condensed to this materialist line, right? That just right. goes, there's there's an end point right. to history. They just think it's it's not the social justice end point. They think the end point to, to the entire yeah. enlightenment is the atomization of the individual. And I, I, I'm much more skeptical of that kind of that straight line thing. It seems to me that there's a lot that came out of the 1960s, for example, that didn't have to inevitably develop in the right, West, but did. Right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's also my argument with, with Deneen, who I obviously respect. Um, and, 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 uh, you know, the, the sort of Catholic integralist world is sort of small and I'm sort of, I don't know if I would describe myself as an integralist. I'm sort of like, you know, one, one foot in, one foot out. Um, and, and yeah, it's easy to mock. I mean, obviously I'm French, so I don't believe it's all been downhill since the 13th century, but it's all been downhill since the 17th century. That's the, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that based, I mean, if you ask me what I think, I think that you had this sort of amazing arc of Western civilization from, you know, 4,000 years from the time of Charlemagne to World War One, let's say. So that's, that's a thousand years. Um, two, two very French points, by the way, to, to pick <laughs> both on either end, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 we really are the most important culture country in the world, uh, culturally anyway. Um, and, and, and you had like important moments throughout the arc. Like I, I do think that you can learn a lot from the middle ages, even today. Like I do think that I do think that, you know, Thomas Aquinas is still relevant as a political philosopher. Like, absolutely. Uh, I think that you can learn about medieval guilds on, you know, how do you have a society that, you know, where people have like an economic safety net, but it's not big government programs. Like, I think that's absolutely relevant. Uh, but also, was it like the unsurpassable golden age and that, 
you know, the goal of life is to like return to 12, you know, to 12, 15. No, that, that doesn't really make sense. Um, so I think you can learn from that. I think you can learn from the Renaissance. I think you can learn from the early modern era. I think you can learn from, you know, the, 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 the era of fastest technological growth was the late 19th century. So I th- definitely think there's a lot to learn from that even though it was an era that was already pretty liberal <laughs> by my standards. Uh, the late 19th century was way too progressive for me. But, um, but I still think you can learn from it. So, uh, and, I, and of course I'm somewhat joking, but um, I don't know if that answers your question, but anyway, no, I don't, I don't believe that like, you know, the 13th century was like the golden age and then it's everything, absolutely everything has been down now from there. No, I don't believe that. No, no, I, I guess that's not really what I, I meant. The, the, the more serious argument they're making, and maybe I was, I was, um, I was being a little bit, you know, like tongue in cheek about it. Um, but the, the more serious argument they're making is that there, there is no way to have, a, you know, a liberal system that doesn't end in this kind of atomization that I think, at this point, the left and the right, or at least certain right. parts of the left, recognize right. as, if not the problem of modernity, you know, right. at least in the in the top three, um, and it, right. it's sort of partially a political problem, partially a theological problem, right? It, it it's yeah. um, there there. I, I guess I'm I'm objecting to the inevitability of liberalism yeah. going that way, and and I I, I really like um, especially, I guess the sexual revolution to me seems a more uh, relevant turning point than yeah. for example, Thomas Jefferson, right? Like we had t- in this country, um, we had, you know, 150 years um, or more where we didn't really have this, this progressive um, view of human sexuality. And we were able to have a kind of political liberty um, and, right. and an enlightenment structure. That's not to say obviously that um, there weren't major problems, but every country faces every, you know, every, every generation has some kind right. of political crisis, right. Right. but that right. wasn't ours. Right. I, I don't think you could fairly say that, that, that during the time of the founding um, or, or even well into the 19th century, the crisis of America was that we were, atomized right in fact yeah. the opposite uh, out you know starting with the great french observer right alexis de tocqueville we had a very very robust yeah. um civic society very very strong families i mean the founding period <laughs> it's amazing how many kids they had um and because america was incredibly prosperous relative to yeah. the time and people could afford all of a sudden to have 10 or 12 or 15 kids and they did um right. but you know, it doesn't seem to me that those things have to go together, um, that that this kind of political liberty or the enlightenment structure uh, surrounding um, surrounding individual rights, so natural rights, this entire yeah. um, edifice of, of the enlightenment, or even for that matter, democracy, um, small r republicanism, um, all of those those developments. It seems to me we had all of those things and not this problem of atomization. Um and that this this atomization really accelerated and yeah. became a, a massive problem only actually in the 1960s or 70s. So it seems to me that that calls out for a different explanation than well, Thomas Jefferson said all men are created equal, and therefore now we we believe that um, you know there's no distribution of talents among men, right? So I I, I don't that just doesn't ring true to me as a matter of history. 
Yeah, well, I mean, all men are created equal was not, uh, you know, not a smart thing. <laughs> Pursuit of happiness was even worse. <laughs> and I know some people. Like, I, get for inviting a I know some people who will say, you know, oh, by happiness he meant virtue, like Aristotle. And it's like, no, he didn't. Anyway, but I, I mean, I agree with everything you've just said, or at least I remember a time when I would have said the same thing. Um, and it's not that I disagree, it's that it's sort of become moot. Like, you can, you know, basically, you know, if you if you go back to, let's say, 2005 or whatever, you know, sort of ascendant, religious, first things, fusionist, conservatism. Um, even then, everybody would have agreed that liberalism can have this atomizing effect and this sort of like, you know, be this asset that sort of like destroys society. Um, the The disagreement would be, you know, is it going to? Like, we we know this can happen if you if you're religious at all and a conservative at all, you have to at least agree that it's a possibility. Um, well, now it's 2022, and turns out it did happen. So, like, whether or not it was inevitable, or whether there was a different path we might have trod, um is a very interesting theoretical question, is a very interesting question for novelists. Uh, but it's sort of not very relevant, I think, to like current reality because like now we're, we're on the other side. Like now, you know, um, it, I forget the statistic, like one third of Americans say they don't have anyone they're not related to that they can talk about, that they can talk to about problems in their life. Like the atomization is like 100%. Like, you know, like, I mean, there, uh, uh, one account I follow, I, I, I really like to like hurt myself, <laughs> uh, is, um, it's, um, I forget what it's called, uh, but it's like a media company that's like about uh, it's about dating and it's for Zoomers. And so like every time I look at it, I feel like A, I'm super old and B, you know, I, 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 I sort of pray to God to like just, you know, wipe, wipe out humanity and like start over because it, like it's done. Like the way young people like, I mean, like the atomization, like we're in it, like everything, like all of the indicators are all the way to the red, you know, uh, we live in a regime that sort of, you know, basically it's reigning ideology is like race hate, you know, against white people. <laughs> so like every, every dimension of life, you know, sex, friendship, uh, race, uh, you know, everything it's like everything everything is in the red so you know we're no longer having to deal with the problem of like how do we avoid atomization it's like what do we do now that like the neutron bomb has gone off like the virus is out of the lab 
you know, the nuke blew up, like whatever your metaphor is, like we're, we're in the post-apocalyptic universe. So now we have to figure out how to rebuild civilization. All right. It's like we no longer have to secure the nuclear plant. Like everything has been showered with uranium. <laughs> the nuclear plant blew up and everything, everything is radioactive and like it's Mad Max world out there. So 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 the important question is how do we rebuild? Um, yeah. Sorry for ranting a little bit. So so no, I, no, no. I, 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 I might agree with you. Like I I mean, if you wanna be purely theoretical like you we could you know it's an interesting theoretical question but i think it's just purely theoretical at this point because like we're we're so far over on the other side i mean like you know we're we've gone down to arguing whether it's okay for pedophiles to handle kids education like that's where we are as a society <laughs> like <laughs> no I, I don't disagree at all um that that's you know, the world this we find that in, goes yeah. Uh, and one day, for no reason at all, people voted Adolf Hitler into power. <laughs> I, I, so I guess um, obviously the origins are relevant, exactly because I think we need to address the question that you're bringing up, which is what do we do about it, right? Um, and perhaps understanding where it comes from helps, perhaps it doesn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, but what's 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 your answer to that question then? I mean, how do we start to rebuild? essentially civilizational connections between human beings who are at this point more atomized probably than human beings have ever been in history. Oh God. Uh, Light light question to wrap up the hour. (laughs) Yeah. That's like the, the, the $10 trillion question. Um, And you know, that, you know, and maybe some of the potential answers could you know, could get people canceled. So, you know, but you have to tread lightly. Um, I mean, I think, obviously I can't give you like my whole like program or answer, but one thing I will say is that I think that one thing, which is a necessary condition, not sufficient, but necessary is for conservatives to believe that they have a right to rule. Um, for conservatives to believe that they are better people than the, you know, the groomers on the other side, um, which they really are, <laughs> by the way, um, and that therefore they have a right, a, a moral right, a divine right, a moral right, in in any case, to run the government for the benefit of the entire country in much the same way that a parent has a complete right to tell their child not to run into traffic and to assert that they, you know what I mean? Like, the, the best people meaning best both in terms of competence and, you know, we could improve there, but we're, we're, we're still doing pretty well compared to the guys on the other side. The best people in terms of competence and in terms of morality have the right, certainly in a democracy where you can get elected. And so if you've been elected, you have the right to run the country for the benefit of 
everyone, right? Not not for the benefit of you and your friends exclusively, but for the benefit of everyone. When, once you've been elected to the government, and if you are the better people, the better person than the other guys who might have been elected, you have the right to run the government. You have the right to use the government. And the reason why I say this is because I I feel like many of my friends on the right don't believe that they have this right. They don't believe that they have the right. They believe that the reason why we elect our people is so that they do nothing while the other guys, you know, it's because it's less bad than the other guys, but their job is to do nothing. And again, I understand thinking that if you've got the levels of like social engagement and church attendance and whatever of like 1952, but like, you know, government that governs best govern government that governs least governs best uh, in the Mad Max universe is not, is not a reasonable proposition. It's not. And, and it doesn't, um, Um, it's not practical and it's not moral. Um, like, you know, it's like a doctor. Like sometimes the doctor first do no harm. Okay. But like, sometimes you just need to like put your hands in the wound and like apply pressure. And like the, a doctor who looks at a patient and watches him bleed out because he says first do no harm is not a good doctor. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's a really um, reasonable analogy actually. I, and I, I think I largely agree with you that of course there, there are things that need to be handled by politics and in the broader sense. Um, and in American government, that means um that that means working through a democratic system. People actually, people in America, uh, I think actually people on the right in America are overly spurgy about this distinction between republics and, and democracies. Of course, they exist, those distinctions, but actually our founders, to a certain extent, use those interchangeably um, in, in their writings, um, understanding that there's a democratic, small d democratic element to our republic, right? right? right. Um, but I... I so I, I guess I agree with you there. I, I do. Um, I have noticed very much like there's there's such a, a different sensibility in American politics than in the old world, um, and I, I think that's like under under acknowledged actually by both sides of the Atlantic. I remember thinking about um, you know speaking with my French friends exactly about like uh, for example how they saw their own revolution versus ours. They assumed that we saw our revolution very similarly, whereas. In America, it's 99% of people who think that our revolution was a good thing. Yeah. Um, and in France, it's very much still a dividing line in politics. I just think like, but when you get to this level of sort of regime shattering questions, I, I think that, yeah. that there isn't really a do no harm. There isn't a neutral aspect to what you're saying about, you know, certain levels of 1950 or even 1960s, early 1960s. Um, you know, fundamentally, so civil society in America was healthy until really, I mean, really into the sixties um, and especially into yeah. the seventies. So uh, now we find ourselves at the end of that, that at least 50 year road with very few good options to stop the bleeding. Yeah. Um, and on that note, Pascal, <laughs> uh, thank you so, so much. Um, on that for, optimistic for note. 
Yeah, very. This is that's the the signature of this podcast. But yes, you can you can follow Pascal's work not only in the places um, that I mentioned at the top of the the hour, but also um, at p at p e g o b r y p e gobri on Twitter. Um, and so you can follow follow his views. I, I actually I, I'm um, we ran out of time. I wanted to talk to you about some of your your sexual revolution views as well because um, those are those are really interesting. And uh, so folks should should thank follow God, me. thank God, follow. we didn't talk about that. <laughs> um but, but thank you so much for coming on even more it. canceled yeah. um there's no cancellation here at this this podcast but um i just wanted to remind the listeners before i wrap up that we have at independent women's forum we have two other uh, podcasts we have she thinks um which is more of a policy uh quick you know sort of news of the day update um run by my friend beverly hallberg she's great um you should check out she thinks as well as at the bar which is something that i run with my colleague jennifer braceris and we talk about issues in law and culture. Um, so we, we talk about either the latest Supreme Court decisions and what those mean for policy um, and, and for, frankly, for, for life in America, but also just cultural developments. So we're, we've been, our last few um, episodes have discussed, for example, the massive Title IX regulations um, that are redefining the word sex. So um, those are the kind of topics that, that over at At The Bar that we we talk through. Um, if you are interested in either one of those, you can find those podcasts um, as well on all of those normal podcast places that I'm about to read out and I do every episode. So thank you so much for joining another episode of High Noon, uh, which is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send me comments or questions at my email, inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button or leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. With that, be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.